What you are about to hear is not, 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 not a podcast. <laughs> this is a global conversation recorded live in real time with real people, journalists, business leaders, academics, politicians. I think the term is a deep state. Oh dear. Investors, experts, diplomats, citizens, coming together from around the world to share their views and ask our guests the questions. If you would like to join this conversation or hear our incredible library of past conversations, please visit our website, pm101.club, and join the fastest growing conscious community on the free internet. Thanks for being here. Enjoy. 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 Enjoy the show. The show. The show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Politics and Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning, and in recent months, my friend Justin Higgins and I and our friends have convened hundreds of live conversations, sometimes more than once per day, with up to 30,000 live listeners and participants. We're just now starting to release recorded portions of these conversations for the first time, and we're grateful to you for joining us. Today, we're very excited to release part of a conversation, interview, and audience Q&A we had with Senator Mark Warner from the U.S. state of Virginia. If you follow U.S. news, you know that parties in Congress sometimes have difficulty working with each other, but they're trying to put together a bipartisan bill right now that would fix roads, bridges, ports, internet, and other American infrastructure. On the day we talked to Senator Warner, he had literally been locked in a room with a group of other senators, Republicans, and Democrats, trying to figure out details and come to an agreement. We also talked about the senator's efforts to expand broadband internet, a lot of people in the U.S. still today don't have access, about cybersecurity, the recent attacks on America's gas and food supplies, about how and whether the government should pay for this infrastructure bill, or whether assets like roads and bridges should be sold to private companies, and about the filibuster, or cloture rule, which requires 60 senators to agree in order to get most things done, and is a bar the Senate itself often struggles to meet. It was a great conversation, as always, our audience had great questions. Our friend, Vice News Chief Political Correspondent Elizabeth Landers stopped by and asked some questions, which was awesome, and we hope you will enjoy it. If you like or dislike what you hear, if you want to hear more episodes, if you want to find information about how to join us live almost every day of the week, either to listen in or ask an upcoming guest a question, please visit our website, pm101.club, where you can find all of that and more. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. Senator, infrastructure talks have been one of the most covered issues in the Biden administration. I think we were talking earlier before you got in here. It might be the largest and most influential bipartisan piece of legislation to pass in two decades. If you can, um, you know, help your colleagues uh, see the way through this. Uh, we've seen really some contentious words from, uh, you know, parties on both sides. Uh, in, in the Senate, but also uh, in the House, you're working with members in the Senate and you are taking part in these bipartisan talks. Uh, so juxtapose on one side, we have these acrimonious words. On the other side, we have pictures of you, your staff bringing in food into these, um, you know, talks that are happening at a very high level, like you said, 10 senators, 30 staff. Can you walk us through what a glimpse into that room is? And then maybe tell us a story or two that we haven't seen in the media about a Republican that's been particularly helpful in these negotiations. Well, Justin, yeah, 
Uh, thanks, and thanks to you and Liz, and uh, and I'm glad we're doing this. Um, well, first of all, let's kind of like as you said, set the stage, and you know, we've been talking about infrastructure and the needs to improve our infrastructure you know, since I've been in politics. I mean, we we've really not you know, the the last time this country really you know took on infrastructure in a major way. You could argue it was when. You know, Eisenhower built the interstate system or you know, back in the 70s when there were a lot of efforts to kind of upgrade quality airports. But we've kind of been riding on our laurels for a long time. And America went from probably having the best roads, rail, airports in the world to kind of in many places, you know, you go into an airport in many parts of America, it feels like it's third world. Or you travel on a lot of roads that are, um, you know, frankly, not in great condition. And we've seen over the last 30 years, you know, investment in infrastructure as a percentage of our economy, you know, uh, get cut in half. So it, it, that's just not a very good business plan. Again, I don't care whether you're a Democrat or Republican. You, know, you want your economy to function. You want kids to be able to go to school. You want people to be able to go to work. And our infrastructure is just getting tired. And, and when I say that, it's not just roads and, and rail and airports. But it's things you don't see. Probably many listeners remember a few years back when the people up in Flint, Michigan couldn't drink clean water because their their water system had gotten uh, so polluted and the pipes were so old. Or I think we we uh, understand the 21st century that, uh, particularly after COVID, that that um, um, you know broadband is infrastructure. And we've also thought we you know I've been in the Senate now 12 years and people have been talking about smart grid, how do we make our electrical system more efficient? Um, but not much has happened. So there's a host of areas where we definitely know we need to do something. And I think what, what drove the group of us, most of us in this group have kind of hung out in the past. We, we you know, I like to joke that I'm working the only place in America being a gang member is a good thing. You know, every time there's a group of Democrats and Republicans, they get labeled the gang of six, or the gang of 10 or the gang of eight, whatever. Um, and a lot of us, probably eight or nine of us in this group, um, were involved in a similar bipartisan effort, not about infrastructure, but about COVID relief uh, in the final month of, of Trump's administration. We got, a, we got a big bill in, $900 billion, to try to help folks get through the end of COVID. So we all started sitting down about oof, a month and a half ago, two months ago, to talk about infrastructure and you know, kind of narrowed the gap on what we thought it would include. There's a lot of things that President Biden's talked about that may get dealt with with a later bill. Um, but we decided what we would call kind of hard infrastructure. And we came up with this plan, basically $580 billion of new money. We came forward with that after Biden had initially tried with a, another group of Republicans, and they only got about halfway there and it broke apart. So we said, well, listen, we got to, you know, this is going to really test our trust in each other, because to get a deal like this, you got to trust each other. And um, we have been hard at it. Uh, about three or four weeks ago, we'd made enough progress that we went down to the White House and you know, did this great photo op with the president. He endorsed our, our, our ideas. And then we went you know, kind of back into the rooms and um, started, you know, fretting through all the details. And, you know, and the details is where this gets hard, where it gets messy. 
you know, for example, we were going to do, we were going to say part of the way we pay for these roads and broadband and water and sewer, what have you, is by um, having better enforcement of our tax code. So more resources to the IRS. That became very politically unpopular for a lot of our Republican uh, friends. And so we had to take that out, but that meant we had a $100 billion hole and we had to go find other programs. So it's been, you know, lots and lots of this. Uh, you know, people get grumpy if they don't eat. I, I find sometimes if you can have a glass of wine with somebody and, you know, that might uh, get you closer to yes. Um, um, maybe people get a little mellower. Uh, uh, so it's, you know, it, this is, again, a, a group that trusts each other, knows each other. I guess in terms of uh, uh, an example of, you know, one of our Republican friends, um, you know, everybody brings a different skill to this. I mean, Rob Portman uh, is really good with the numbers. Bill Cassidy from Louisiana is, you know, has always got kind of an interesting um, uh, set of ideas, often really creative that, that you know, thinking about thinking he's a doctor from his normal profession as opposed to a, a, a politician. And so I think he always comes with creative ideas. Lisa Murkowski is always reminding us about, you know, she's the senator from Alaska about, you know, rural needs and needs of Native people across our, our country. You know, so folks bring different um, skills to the table. Uh, you know, at, at some point after our agreement with the president, we, we also realized, you know, we need to bring the White House into this because end of the day, for us to get all the Democrats you know, President Biden has to endorse it. And that's been an interesting uh, activity as well. The, the White House negotiating team has included Steve Reschetti, who's the counselor to the president, Brian Deese, who's the head of the um, uh, NEC, the National Economics Council, and um, Louisa Terrell is the uh, chief legislative person. So, you know, they've been brought into this as, um, as, as well. Um, and, you know, and a lot of times there's, you know, not every issue breaks down on a, um, a, a purely political basis. Again, uh, I guess I can't I mean, Rob comes from Ohio, another big state, but I'm kind of the other big state with Virginia. There's a lot of issues where, you know, um, Gene Shaheen from New Hampshire and Susan Collins may agree. They're both from relatively small states in Northern New England. So it's, it, you know, it, it, it doesn't always break down Democrats versus Republican inside, uh, inside the room. Um, and I think, you know, for the most part, we've, we've, uh, uh, kept our, our, our tempers. There've been a few times that we, you know, we get into that zone of, of, um, uh, you know, either it's an argument we've all heard so many times we're sick of hearing again, uh, or, you know, people are, people are, um, you know, tired, but nobody's gotten to the point where either side accuses each other of, um, you know, not dealing straight. Cause you know, my, again, my, my real belief about politics is that, you know, half of it is policy or, maybe even more than half is policy, but a lot of it is based upon relationships and you got to trust somebody in the other room that they're not out to, you know, not out to stick you the whole time you're going through a conversation. And I think we've kind of got that for the most part in this room. So with broadband, I do want to pivot to broadband. It's been an issue that has had bipartisan support for a while for everybody in the audience. What does broadband mean? It means getting quality access to the internet to many underserved 
and rural communities that currently don't have it. It is one of the biggest things that we can do to drive the gap and close that gap of income and really opportunity inequality um, here in America. So, uh, Senator, assuming that you have, you know, that 60, 70 billion dollars for broadband in this bill, who will get the federal funding and what will they be directed to spend? Well, first of all, I appreciate that, that, Justin. And, you know, and I, yeah, broadband is something that I believe strongly in. I, I, I believe that, you know, if any community doesn't have high speed broadband, it needs to be high speed. It can't be sometimes the FCC, the, the regulator is, you know, says things like, you know, old dial up DSL. That's not really broadband. That's, you know, that's not great connectivity. And, and, and again, a lot of communities, you know, whoever is the incumbent provider may say, oh, yeah, we cover this community. But, you know, they might just cover, you know, 5% of the community. And there's some really bizarre things that have happened with the maps that show the coverage. I think anybody that uh, that lives in an underserved area knows what I'm talking about. If, if, if their incumbent provider says, oh, yeah, we cover everybody and, you know, and, and half your community isn't really covered. That's always been a problem. And, you know, and we've seen this become such a need during COVID when people were caught at home, had to work at home or, you know, go to school remotely or try to do telehealth remotely. You know, the idea is that, that uh, you know, you got somebody could do it in a home with good connections and three or four or five computers. You know, it's a it's a burden, but it's not an impossibility. Whereas in poorer communities or communities that don't have coverage, you know, if a mom's got to take the kids driving to the school parking lot because there happens to be a hot spot there, I mean, that's a, not a very practical solution or the idea that you got to go sit in a, a Starbucks or a, Mac, a McDonald's um, where there's a, again, a hot spot uh, to, to use broadband, that doesn't make sense. So what we're trying to do is get some of this money um, down through the states, and we got to make sure the states know how to do this so that they can, they're sometimes closer to what is really happening on the ground. So we've tried to do some of that money through the states, usually through the this group called National Telecommunication, NTIA, uh, which is the, you know, out of the Department of Commerce, they're less captured by the incumbents. Again, the, the big providers sometimes you know, have, have been more about overbuilding rather than expanding service. So we want to make sure we're really expanding service. Then we got to deal with affordability. So, um, you know, it makes no sense, even if you've got broadband, if you're in an urban area or, or suburban area, but you can't afford, you know, 50, 60, 70 bucks a month, um, you know, then it's then it's not practical as well. So we're trying to hit on both of these coverage and affordability. I, I would say this, there is a um, no community or state should be able to say, oh, gosh, we want that. But feds, you got to pick up all the cost, because with the money that we put out in the March bill um, the, that's called the American Rescue Plan, literally there was 350 billion bucks that went to state and local governments and most states and most most local governments all across this country have got a lot of one-time money. And I can't think of a better thing to do than investing it in, in something that's a hard, tangible a- asset like broadband. And whether that's fiber to the home, whether that the parts of Southwest Virginia and the mountains, we're, we're actually using Elon Musk's uh, satellite company. Um, and then, you know, there are certain areas where if we get enough of this spectrum out there, there could be a wireless solution, but we do need to make sure that it's, it's um, high enough speed. You know, we're looking at you know, 100 megahertz, you know, maybe it's up or, or, or down, you know, and 20 megahertz up so that, um, um, you know, so that there's 
you can actually get your Zoom or you can actually see a movie or you can you you, you could uh, post your work if you have to. Um, so we're, it's about speed, availability, and price pricing. And I think there is um, you know, this is one of those areas where I think we're going to actually get it done with what's already been spent and what should be spent out of this infrastructure bill. I think it'll this can become a reality. So the idea of um, you know, the idea that I just can't get coverage. Uh, it hopefully, it'll be a thing of the past. The final comment just on that is because you know the truth is, if you have broadband, it doesn't guarantee you success if you're a community. But if you don't have broadband, I can guarantee you nobody's going to move your business uh, to a community that doesn't have broadband in 21, you know, 2021. Senator, you sound pretty optimistic about the chances of this overall infrastructure package passing, but. You know, we saw yesterday that you guys had that procedural vote on the Senate floor, which was just to start the debate um, for for those who maybe don't follow Senate uh, procedure all the time. It was just to start the debate on the infrastructure bill, but that didn't pass. Um, so I'm wondering if this package, if you guys aren't able to reach a, a, a deal and if this package does not pass, would you support plussing up and adding more money to this reconciliation bill that Democrats might go at alone uh, in order to get some of the infrastructure stuff into that vehicle as a potential other way to pass some of this um, yeah. funding. Well, Liz, yeah, let me let me address that because, and again, for, for, for other listeners, um, you know, this is kind of hard, tangible stuff in this infrastructure package. You know, President Biden has also said, hey, we ought to make sure that um, you know, we've got adequate child care around the country. We have preschool. We have free community college. You know, the people who take care of our parents and you know, especially at home, if you're disabled or our parents in terms of senior care, and quality care, you know, that ought to be a good career, not just something that is, you know, minimum wage. So there's a series of objective kind of family related items. Of how do we make sure that families get a tax cut by if they've got children, call the child tax credit. Um, and, and you know, I've been part of that negotiation, too. There, I've been kind of more of a moderate versus where, you know, Bernie Sanders or, or President Biden was. And we've come up with a, a number of, and this is over 10 years, so it's going to be a big number, but $3.5 trillion, but that's over 10 years. And I, I, I'm not, you know, I think if we don't get this bipartisan infrastructure deal, it'll be a huge mistake. I think it'll be a huge mistake in terms of kind of that whole idea of senators trusting each other and working together. I think it'll be a huge mistake to, that showing to the American public that even on something is where everybody agrees we need resources, you know, infrastructure, we couldn't get it done. And I think it also, it reinforces this image that we sometimes have around the world that, hey, you know, America's democracy just isn't functioning that well. So I think there's, um, really significant reasons why to keep at this and get it done. But if it, if for some, whatever reason, you know, it, it didn't happen. Yes. I'm open to adding, um, um, some of these topics to a reconciliation bill, but it does, it would make the reconciliation bill, I think, harder to pass because the, um, you know, the $3.5 trillion number, while not as high as some of my democratic friends wanted to go, that was really kind of, a real stretch for me. And frankly, even some of my um, more moderate Democratic colleagues, I'm not sure they're even committed to that. So the idea that we'd have to, you know, plus that up another $600 billion or something um, would 
you know, would be a real, real problem. But I would be, I would be open to it. But I hope, I hope and pray we don't have to go that direction. Thank you for that. We are with Politics and Media 101, Senator Mark Warner, Vice News Chief Political Correspondent, and my friend Liz Landers. We're going to transition now to cybersecurity, and then we're going to get some audience questions in here. Um, Senator, you recently introduced a cybersecurity reporting bill. I, I was wondering, it's a bipartisan piece of legislation. If you could, uh, this is a multiple part question. First, could you go into this piece of legislation? And then in addition to that, you're chairman of the intelligence committee. We don't want to, um, and actually an intelligence committee that functions unlike the other side of <laughs> the other side of Congress. So we want you to go into the bill, why it's so important, but then also, can you go into what offensive measures we should be laying down when President Biden's red line that he put in front of Putin, critical infrastructure and other uh, different areas that he said we don't want any more shenanigans in gets crossed? Maybe that's sanctions, maybe it's hacking back. Uh, how you view the, the reporting with the defense and the offense would be amazing. Right. Great question. Well, first of all, you know, again, for the, for the listeners, I was in the telecom business. I started a company called Nextel, so I know a little bit about broadband and wireless. And then I was a venture capitalist in technology. Um, so I've followed you know, cyber-related items for a while. I started a, uh, a cyber caucus, in a bipartisan cyber caucus. And so that helped get me more educated. And then you know, sitting on the intelligence committee uh, has been like, holy heck, this is such a huge issue. But frankly, trying to get people to focus on cybersecurity uh, has been really, until the last six or seven months, really, really hard. It's kind of nebulous. You don't really know what it means. You know, some of this is spies spying on, you know, we spy on them, they spy on us. Uh, so it, it kind of, um, I think, makes people's eyes glaze over. That started a change two or three years ago. Well, actually, it probably started change here in many ways when the Russians tried to when the Russians interfered in our elections in 2016, where they hacked into the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, and took a lot of information, then released it selectively to try to help Donald Trump over the campaign. Um, and then, you know, it, it got more people's attention when the Russians again um, started, you know, when when they went after Ukraine, and obviously Russia and Ukraine don't get along. But a couple of years back where they launched a major cyber attack in Ukraine, where literally a couple of days before Christmas, they shut down the internet. They shut down most of the systems. They shut down power, you know, the, the, the power stations. And you suddenly saw, holy crap, you know, this is like, this could be a much more powerful way to, to hurt or destroy a country than, than frankly, traditional military means. Um, and then we, we started to get, again, a little more intention over the last couple of years because we've seen countries like China. And when I mentioned China, my beef is with the Communist Party in China, not obviously with the Chinese people or Chinese Americans. But when we saw a country like China literally steal, you know, the, our government estimates close to $500 billion a year of intellectual property on an annual basis. I mean, think about, you know, we go out and spend all this money to build the better jet. If they can figure out a way to steal that technology... Um, you know, you don't have to spend that money on the R&D. So this was a growing policy issue, but nobody, you know, but we didn't have any rules. Um, there's no international standards. There's nothing that says that, you know, if another country 
attacks your hospital system, that that's off limits. I mean, we, we do say in war, you know, you're not supposed to use chemical nerve gas or you're not supposed to like bomb somebody else's hospitals. We have none of those rules um, like that in, um, uh, frankly, in the cyber domain. So fast forward to like um, last December when we ended up with what was called the SolarWinds hack. The SolarWinds hack was where the Russians got into software that was installed in 18,000 companies. Luckily, all they did was try to steal information from a, a much smaller number of those companies. But they could have, if they put that malware in, they could have gone ahead and turned all those companies off. That could have, you know, they could have really attacked our basic underlying systems. That could have shut down our economy. And then we, I think it got people's more attention um, when the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack took place. Again, a group out of Russia, might not have been the government this time, but, you know, cyber criminals basically said, okay, we're going to shut down all your computer systems unless you give us money, you know, 4.4 million bucks. Well, the company went ahead and paid the ransom, but they still had to, you know, take their computers all offline. And if your computers go offline, that regulates, you know, where the oil or, or where the gasoline flows. And, you know, you could have had you know, huge destructive capability. And we saw gas prices spike up and down the East Coast. Just this past week, we, um, we saw the United States, actually in conjunction with our European friends, actually call out China on a hack into Microsoft. So I think this has become a lot more real for a lot of, of um, policymakers and the American public. So I've been working with, you know, mostly folks on the Intelligence Committee, but a couple of other friends uh, in the Senate, 15 of us, <clears throat> and said, you know, what's crazy is here's this area where there are no rules. If you get somebody asking you for, for um, uh, ransomware or if your, your company gets attacked, you have no obligation to even tell the government. Like, you don't have to report it to the cops. And that makes no sense because, uh, like, in the case of SolarWinds, there were part of, you know, we only found out about that because one of the cybersecurity companies came forward and told the government. But there were other companies that were part of those 18,000 that had known months before that something was going wrong with their, their software, but they never reported. So what this cyber incident reporting bill does basically says, if you are part of critical infrastructure or if you're a federal contractor, so not every small business, every, not every small retail, but if it's something like your pipelines, or if it's something like your financial system, or if it's something like, you know, important, you know, your, your uh, internet service provider, if they get hacked, you need to tell the government, not just um, so the government can know, because we can then, you know, we can help with defenses, uh, but also so that you can then tell the private sector, because a lot of the cybersecurity companies are all private. So you need this incident reporting legislation. And then, you know, if you don't report, there's got to be a penalty. But what we also say to businesses is if just the act of you reporting this, we'll give you some immunity on that or we'll make sure that we keep your name confidential. Now, if you screwed up, you may still have to have some obligation to, you know, if you're a public company, you may, may have violated you know, the Securities and Exchange Commission rules about about you know, responsible behavior. So you're not totally off the hook, but the actual act of reporting this incident to the government will give you immunity on that. And that will allow like, you know, mid attack for us to make sure we're, we, we are finding out what the vulnerability was and sharing with that with the other country, with other 
other companies. Um, in the past, you know, my friend Susan Collins, Senator from Maine, a really good friend of mine, you know, she tried to get something like this done starting 10 years ago. But five or six years ago, when we finally passed what was called a voluntary bill, um, you know, the business community said, hey, don't make us report anything. We don't like mandatory reporting. But now people realize this is such a big freaking deal uh, that, you know, that you frankly leave whole parts of our economy vulnerable. So while the business community, individual businesses are very supportive, the business organizations, I'm trying to get them all to be supportive, again, because we put some limited immunity in place. But I'm really hopeful this will be the first step, number one. Number two, and I'm going to come to the offense in a moment. Number two, we've got to do this also in conjunction with our allies, because we need some level of international standards. Um, you know, we all know about what happened with Colonial Pipeline, and maybe people have heard of the solar winds attack. What maybe didn't, people didn't hear was um, some cyber criminals attacked the Irish healthcare system a month or two ago, and frankly, came close to shutting down the whole hospital system and medical system in Ireland. You know, that's pretty wild. So I think we need some level of international standards that say, okay, you know, if you're trying to, in a sense, bomb the hospitals, or if you're trying to, you know, potentially threaten the whole a whole country's economy, like by shutting off your power or potentially blowing up your pipelines, you know, we're going to hold you responsible. Uh, even if the criminal, even if it's just criminals coming out of Russia or criminals coming out of China rather than their spy services. So I think we need this international norm. So we have what's called attribution. Then on the question of offense, I mean, one of the things we have been really reluctant, we're really good at this stuff too, um, but we have been very reluctant to do any kind of cyber escalation because the truth is, you know, we're a lot more technology dependent. I, I like to make the point that, you know, if you shut down Moscow for 24 hours with no power, people will get by. You shut down New York for no power for 24 hours, you'd have, a, you know, you might have a financial crisis. So we have been reluctant to use our offensive capabilities uh, in in any way because of that fear of cyber escalation. So in, in many ways, like the, particularly vis-a-vis Russia and China, who are not as good as us, but they're first tier competitors. They've been stealing our intellectual property, doing this ransomware, basically getting off scot-free. And while I'm not a big fan at all of Trump, the one thing Trump did do was he 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 let our offensive capabilities, which is the National Security Administration, uh, NS, National Security Agency, I'm sorry, NSA and Cybercom, you know, he made it easier for us to, you know, not jump through as many hoops to try to do offense. And while I'm not going to confirm or deny. Uh, this, uh, but I would say that there were a lot of reports that the the groups that that came out of Russia that messed with us in 2016, the Internet Research Agency in particular, um, they weren't as um, uh, they weren't as powerful, particularly in 2018 or 2020. Particularly in 2018, there were reports that you know, some of their systems were all going down, um, and I won't you know, confirm or deny what was going on, but um, suffice it to say, I think a message was heard. They, they have not, there's not a big a player as they, they were, or the fact that recently we were able to recoup some of the ransomware uh, that was paid by, um, uh, paid by the Colonial Pipeline people. That's again, a shot that says, hey, we can go after some of these folks. I think we do have to have uh, offensive capabilities because otherwise, um, um, particularly the first tier opponents like Russia and China, They'll just keep, you know, 
they will keep continuing to steal stuff or mess with us because they feel they can do it with immunity. That makes me feel a lot better hearing that. I won't parse that out right now. We'll do that after. Now we're going to try and do a lightning round, folks. We are here with U.S. Senator Mark Warner, former governor of Virginia and Senate Intel chair. Very important. Um, on that note, let's uh, get some questions in, folks. Be as quick as possible. Wait to be called on. Let's try and be respectful so we can get as many of these questions answered as possible. So we will start with John, and then we will go to Rebecca. John Sauce, sorry. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Justin. I wasn't sure. Uh, Senator, wow, thank you so much for being here. This is incredible. Um, as, as, as background, I, I do um, strategy at a global infra fund, and I'm also one of those individuals that does read some of these colossal bills you guys pass. Um, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm incredibly interested in your infra bank concept. Would that be similar to the Infrastructure Transaction Assistance Network that was proposed in the Innovation and Competition Act. Um, I think that's providing like, proposed to provide like catalytic capital uh, to infrastructure spending abroad, specifically in the Indo-Pacific. And I have to ask this because it seems like you're somewhat sourcing suggestions for how to pay for infrastructure. Has there been any discussion about creating a, a tradable equity market for state municipalities to sell the equity from sustainable infrastructure projects yeah. to US investment plans? That, that, those are, are great questions. I will try to be lightning quick on answers. You know, the, the record of, of, of selling assets has been kind of a mixed one in the United States. I, you know, I think there's been some good examples. And we in Virginia have a lot of public-private partnerships. I've not heard the idea of creating a, a kind of a, a trading market on those. I think it's interesting. The country that's really way ahead of us on selling assets has been Australia. Um, and um, again, in Virginia, we've done some of these public-private been good, some of them have stunk, but I'm intrigued by the by the idea and love to hear more, John, from you on, on that. Secondly, we're the only industrial country in the world that doesn't have a infrastructure bank for their domestic industry. We do, we, we have used some of these financing tools on an international basis. We've got this um, uh, called DFC now. Um, I'm spacing off what the, what the initials stand for, but there is an effort to try to use leverage in projects abroad, but we've really not done much of it here in the States. We've got a relatively small program in the transportation department called TIFIA. There's a re water revolving phone called WIFIA. Um, but this would be an area to try to say, hey, there's nothing wrong with using private sector dollars. But if you're going against Wall Street, you need to have the expertise to go against Wall Street. A lot of times communities get screwed because they don't have the structuring expertise. We would try to create this infrastructure bank that would be funded with $20 billion it could be leveraged up to $200 billion of, of project capital, but and that would all be good. It'd be record low interest rates um, because it would, be, it would have the backing, you know, in a sense, like almost a, a Fannie or Freddie instrument. Um, so I think it would all be good, but also you really need that expertise too, particularly if you're working with smaller communities. So um, there are models in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, it's, it's just time for us to bring this tool to the table. It's not going to be, you know, it's not free money. Let me be clear. Anything in this kind of stuff, you'd have to have it paid back. So that means you got to have a revenue source. And and on you normally think on transportation that means tolls, but it could be other revenue sources. Could be you know a, a people paying their water bills, or it could be a, a, a local government might give part of their revenue stream. So it, it is <clears throat> just one more tool in the toolkit, and it's time I think is the 
to put it in play. Thank you for that, John. We will go to Rebecca, and then we will also go to um, Eric. Rebecca, over to you. Thank you, and thank you so much for being with us, Senator. Thank it's you. Great to great to have you with us. I wanted to ask you about the filibuster. It seems to have come up again, and now is a heated debate even within our own party about, um, particularly as it relates to voting rights. But I I wonder what your thoughts are and what argument you might make for making a case for getting rid of the filibuster. Well, I, Rebecca, I would normally, you know, I've I've normally said, you know, the, watch out what you do when you start messing with some of the rules. I don't want to turn the Senate into the House. And honestly, I kind of believe that if Harry Reid hadn't changed the, the original rules around the filibuster on judges, um, whatever, 10 years ago, um, we might not have the Supreme Court that we have now with such extreme judges. Uh, the only place that I would be willing to carve some kind of exception or make some kind of changes uh, on, on the filibuster is around voting rights. Because, you know, it, it's hard to say, oh, we got to protect the rights of the minority in the Senate, at the same time, when states are disenfranchising, particularly young and minorities around the country, so it is. Um, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways uh, to do this. You could carve out an exemption about voting rights. You could do what's called a talking filibuster. I think some of you guys who who follow this stuff realize here you know, that I always grew up with the idea of the filibuster from this m movie uh, called Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, where you, if you want a filibuster, you got to talk, talk, talk. You know. Anymore, we've gotten rid of the talking filibuster. If you actually had to talk, um, you could hold the floor as long as you talk. That would, you know, putting that back in might be another way to reform. There are people a lot smarter than me on filibuster reform, um, but still, you can't get there unless we had all 50 Democrats um, all willing to vote to change it. And so far, that's not been, you know, I don't think we have all 50. Uh, so, you know, and I've got and some of the people who've got reluctance are real good friends of mine. And, you know, we talk about things, but if I, I think um, I, I do believe you know, the existential issues are voting rights. It is climate change. It is trying to make sure we make these necessary investments. But uh, first and foremost is protecting the democracy. So, uh, you know, we got to make that happen because what, what is happening in some of these states is just is um, anti-democratic, not democratic party, but anti-democracy in ways unlike anything I've seen in my lifetime. Thank you for that. Um, so we're going to go to Eric, and then we always hear, do it classy, we end with a constituent. So we're going to go Eric, and then Tashaya. Eric. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Senator Warner. I appreciate your being here today and talking with us. In that frame of the filibuster cloiture discussion, would you be open to considering something around the frame of moving the cloture motion to the end of debate after amendments have been offered on bills and also the potential of reforming the bird rule to allow for anything that has budgetary impact with a CBO score to be considered in a reconciliation bill, such as the George Floyd Act or H.R. 1 or some other legislation pieces that might not normally go into reconciliation. Thank you, sir. Eric, well, you, 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 know, you actually, you know your stuff. You know your rules. I have to tell you, um, I don't want to, you know, react. I've not thought too much of that. I, I actually, for somebody who's been here 12 years, 
um, all this procedural stuff, I still don't fully, um, you know, I can't fully fo follow. I know some people have said, hey, go to the Senate, learn the rules. You can kind of run the show. I never been that, you know, I'm kind of deep on the policy, but I don't know the procedural rules. So, Eric, I, I'll take that under consideration, both of those ideas. Um, and, and let me try to find a way to get back to you with a little more, um, you know, a little more uh, substantive answer. But I appreciate the question and, and uh, it, this idea of moving the filibuster to the end of cloture rather than at the beginning when you move to proceed to the bill. You know, um, I think it's a I think it's an interesting idea. Th thank, thank you. For you that. Thank you for that, Eric. We are going to go to Tashaya next. It looks like you are in Hampton Roads, Virginia. Do you have a question for the esteemed senator? Yes. So my question is, are there going to be any um, any specific regulations or requirements where the people who are bidding on it for the U.S. companies, where there's a set aside for the U.S. companies, contractors, small business contractors who we act as subcontractors, as well as in the localities where the constructions will be going on, where there will be a requirement for the businesses to hire a certain amount of local people so that that way the economy here can be elevated. That is my well, question. Deshaia, great, great question. Decide there will be a um, um, a requirement you know, that that's been put in a lot of infrastructure, a lot of these bills already around um, um, by American, and and again, you know, there's a, it, there's exemptions on that. That if you know if it's if the, the foreign if the foreign product is you know a lot it's the same quality, a lot lot cheaper, but there is at least a buy American. There's not as much of a buy local. Um, uh, component uh, that might be something we, we ought to think about, but there will be a buy American component. Number one, and, and in terms of hiring, there has not been that um, uh, that requirement in the past. You know, and, and um, you know, again, that is something we've thought about. Probably would go into more of this so-called reconciliation bill, that kind of idea. Um, I'm not sure I could get my Republican friends to go along with that, but because a lot of this will go through the kind of normal transportation programs. Those normal transportation programs do have some money set aside for small businesses. They have some money set aside for women and minority um, uh, contractors. I think it's really important um, that you know, the people who do the work look like our country. And, and that means, and, and, and look like Virginia in the case of Hampton Roads, we, we've got a very diverse communities and they all got to get a piece of the pie. Uh, and I think that's important. Matter of fact, it's one of the things I got in the earlier bills uh, was uh, a record investment in minority banks and depository institutions and what's called CDFIs, community development financial institutions, because we lost a lot of um, uh, small businesses and minority businesses in COVID uh, and, and we need to get more access to capital. So there will be some of those, but I, I'm always interested in seeing if there's ways we can, you know, beef, beef some of those, those components up because, you know, um, and I'll look more on the on the issue of actually the local hiring, but the small business way is some way to get at that that local economy issue. You don't want a contractor coming in to Hampton Road, especially if we did did the uh, third crossing, and only bring people say from you know Alabama or or Colorado. Um, but maybe there's even more we can do. So, Senator, I but that's a great question. I have to thank you. We, we ended with a, a great constituent question. Got to thank you again uh, from the bottom of my heart. You got it. Just, it's been great talking to you and Liz. 
Liz, I'll see you in the hallways again, where uh, sometimes I'm like, since I'm back in the middle of this stuff, I feel like I'm being stalked by some of the reporters. <laughs> but um, you know, part of the price of admission. So, and I hope yes, everybody sir. has everybody has a good day. I've enjoyed this session. Um, you know, let's get this damn infrastructure bill done. Country needs it, and let's put some points up to show that we can still function. Thank Thanks you guys. For joining us. Thank you. That concludes our regularly scheduled programming for today. But again, if you like or dislike what you heard, please visit our website, pm101.club, where you can find all of our episodes for free. We have almost 100 on the way. You can also find information about how to join us live almost every single day of the week with a schedule including national journalists, members of Congress, experts, leaders, all coming here so you can hear from them directly in their own words, in their own voices, live on issues that are important to you. Again, thanks for joining us. This has been Politics and Media 101. We hope to see you and hear from you soon.